Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third and final episode of the mini-series on the podcast titled The Judean Revolt with Professor Guy Rogers, with this third and final episode being titled Masada and the Legacies of the Great Revolt. Uh, this series is based on Professor Rogers' new book titled For the Freedom of Zion, The Great Revolt of Jews Against Romans, 66 to 74 CE, published by Yale University Press. And once again, as mentioned on the first and the previous two episodes, is based focused and based on a purely historical look at what happened on based on the classical sources, mainly being Josephus and others. So once again, not the Hashgraphic or Chazal based discussion. Um, I'll, I'll mention here if anyone's interested in listening to something more on that on Agarita and Chazal and Chorban, um, they can check out a recent episode I did with Yaakov Beer about his uh, newly published Sefer Bikfe Hagolas. Uh, so, in back to this mini-series, in the first episode of the series, we discuss Herod and Hordus and his reign and what happened until the outbreak of the war. The second episode uh, focused on the war itself, what happened in Yerushalayim up until the Chorban Abayas, the destruction of the temple. And this episode, episode three, focuses on the aftermath of the Chorban, what happens in Yerushalayim, in Eretz Yisrael, uh, culminating with Masada, and also we do detour and discuss what happens in Rome as Titus returns to Rome and the amphitheater, the Colosseum, which is the Flavian amphitheater, um, as well as the Arch of, of Titus, of Titus, as those are familiar with, but, you know, again, Komenei um, Masada and much other discussion in the episode. So I would like to thank, once again, the sponsor of the entire series, olivebeta.org. This Tishabov, to make your Tishabov experience more meaningful, I encourage you to check out Olive Beta's collection of Tishabov videos. Rabbi David Foreman, who's the founder of Aleph Beta and was a guest on the podcast, and his videos explore some of the most beloved Tisha B'Av texts to discover the deeper meaning and relevance of the day. And for listeners of the podcast, for a limited time only, they can get you can get a, $18 off an annual Aleph Beta membership, which is one free month, which will give you access to all the Tisha B'Av videos, plus hundreds more on Parsha and other holidays. All you need to do is go to alephbeta.org, that's A-L-E-P-H, B-E-T-A dot org and enter coupon code SFARIM22. Once again, coupon code SFARIM22, S-E-F-O-R-I-M-22 for $18 of an annual premium membership, which is, again, one free month. And for those that aren't familiar, you can check out Aleph Beta. They have many videos on a lot of wi- wide range of topics and they are cartoon videos with Tyra. It's very interesting. So for those not familiar, I encourage you to, to check it out and you can click the link in the show's notes. Also, for Professor Ro- Professor Rogers' book, For the Freedom of Zion, uh, once again, there'll be a link in the show's notes, as well as a link to Josephus' Jewish War and some other books that we discussed in the show. And as I mentioned in the last episode, Farm Chatter now is part of um, Amazon Associates. So if you want to use those links uh, to help support Farm Chatter, I very much appreciate it. And as always, if anyone has any questions, comments, or feedback, um, they can email me, farmchattergmail.com, or if you'd like to support to support the show, or to sponsor an episode, email me sfarmchatter at gmail.com or check out the website, sfarmchatter.com, and there's a link on there as well. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Sfarm Chatter podcast and the final episode of the mini-series uh, on the Horbun and on, uh, I, once again, I'm being joined with, on this uh, series and then this episode, P- Professor Guy Rogers, who is the William R. Kennan Jr. Professor of Classics and History at Wellesley College, and the... The book that this that the discussion is uh, loose, based on, loosely or more so, is For the Freedom of Zion, The Great Revolts of Jews Against Romans, published by Yale University Press. And as with the other episodes, the link to purchase the book will be in the show's notes. So thank you, Professor Rogers, for joining me once again. 
Well, thank you for having me. Okay, so last episode, the second episode, we kind of ended off where the Chorban, which is the burning of the temple, the base of Migdash was, was burning, and we kind of ended around over there. So let's pick up over there and the aftermath of the destruction. Right, so of course, you know, the, the burning of the temple was a, uh, a major event in Roman and Jewish history and in world history as well. Um, the sad thing is, is that um, the destruction didn't stop, as it were, with the burning of the temple. In the aftermath of that, um, the Romans um, actually destroyed some of the other major buildings in Jerusalem, like the chamber where the Sanhedrin met. And then um, they started sort of wider um, destruction in the, in the lower city and in the upper city, and there was a large massacre of the population. Um, <clears throat> and Josephus says that when that was over with, that, um, that Titus um, ordered the Roman soldiers to um, raise the temple itself, that is, knock it over or what remained of it after the burning. Um, and, you know, visitors to Jerusalem. Um, and the Western Wall, the Herodian Retaining Wall, probably have noticed some of those huge sort of monolithic stones lying out in front of the, the Herodian uh, Retaining Wall in the street. Those are actually the, um, the, the stones that are, are probably the most intimately connected to the architecture of the Temple Mount itself, not the Retaining Wall, but what there was up on top of the wall. And it, I, it always strikes me as ironic when I when I walk by there because everybody, of course, is at the retaining wall, and I'm pointing over, you know, in the distance to these stones that were actually part of what there was up there. But, but anyway, I mean, there was a pretty uh, comprehensive uh, destruction um, of the city, and then also of the survivors of the, the initial massacres. Uh, Josephus says that the Romans executed the so-called brigands. They spared um, some young men to walk in the, um, the triumphal march of uh, Titus and Vespasian. And um, another group, um, 11,000 or so, who sort of survived um, while the Romans were trying to figure out what to do with them, um, apparently starved to death. And then some of the men of sort of fighting age were sent around to kind of the arenas, the amphitheaters in the Eastern uh, cities of the Roman empire to, you know, fight against each other to the death or to fight against wild animals uh, for the entertainment of the, um, the local population. So a pretty brutal um, uh, outcome and then series of sort of punishments um, of people in the aftermath of the, of the destruction. Now, do we know, so how, what, you know, numbers wise, Josephus discusses how many were taken prisoner and how many were killed in Jerusalem alone and just once you're going to talk about those numbers, you know, how accurate are those numbers really that Josephus gives? 
Right. So Josephus says that there were 97,000 people enslaved during the war and 1.1 million people um, who died during the, the Roman siege of Jerusalem. Um, it's it's really hard to know. These are sort of large, rounded off numbers. Um, <clears throat> I think it's much more likely that that number of 97,000 enslaved um, has some basis in reality, because as I think I mentioned last time, the Romans tended to keep very careful records of the number of people that were captured and then sold into slavery uh, during their wars. Um, the 1.1 million, I think I think the, the figure of the 1.1 million is kind of a reflection of the idea that um, that there were a large number of people who were in Jerusalem at the time um, because the, the siege started um, during Passover. And elsewhere, Josephus talks about very large numbers of people who would visit the city at the time. I seriously doubt that there were 1.1 million people killed there. Um, I don't think there would have been enough room in uh, ancient Jerusalem for 1.1 million people. Um, but I do think if we were thinking on the order of tens of thousands of people killed during the siege, uh, we probably wouldn't be um, too far off. So, Right. And just one more. So the, there was obviously, like you're saying, many, many, many people killed and yeah. a terrible uh, tragedy. Now, about the enslaved, so what would what what happened to them? And in general, when Rome when the Romans, you know, this is a Roman historian, Roman would when the Romans would capture people and sell them as slaves, what would happen to them? So, um, so women and children were often uh, made kind of into domestic slaves. They worked around the households and things like that. Um, we happen to know that um, a large number of the of the the men, uh, the Jewish men slaves, were sent to work on kind of imperial projects like mines or agricultural labor. So really, really hard labor. Um, <clears throat> there's a a very poignant inscription actually from Italy of a uh, which mentions a, um, a woman who apparently was sold to a, a guy, a, a Roman, and became um, uh, a member of his household. And um, her name was in the inscription is Maria. Her um, real name was probably Miriam. So this is one of the very few examples that we have of um, a, 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 recollection, a recollection of the identity of, of an individual who was part of this terrible, terrible destruction. Um, you know, when you go to the, uh, the Holocaust Museum in, in Jerusalem, obviously, um, there are many exhibitions which uh, quite rightly attempt to restore the histories of individuals who um, were, who perished in, in the Holocaust. And I think it's um, sort of tragic and um, ironic, unfortunately, that in the case of the destruction of the temple and a large part of Jerusalem and some of the other towns and cities during this revolt, during the Roman Empire, 
we we know about the fates of kind of a handful of individuals and all the rest of those people we really can't um know anything about where they were or what happened to them individually very sad actually okay right um now to pull you back for, or actually it feels right in here, something we didn't discuss was that when the date that it was uh, destroyed, I know you discussed about uh, Chazal, the rabbis, and then you have Josephus discussing this. So something that you want to mention. Right. So, um, you know, according to um, Josephus, um, the end of the temple, the burning down of the temple was um, on the 10th of Luz uh, or Ab, Um because you know that um, Josephus uses these sort of adjusted um, Macedonian and Hebrew calendar um, rabbinic sources, uh, everyone will know, um, date the destructions of both the first and the second temple to to the ninth. So there's a little bit of of difference about um, about the dating of it. I think that, you know, Part of that may have to do actually with um, the 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 real physical destruction itself, because, you know, um, these were buildings made out of monumental stones and they didn't just burn down in a few hours. You know, the the fires we know um, that destroyed the temple and the Temple Mount um, went on for, you know, a good long time. So that may be that. I, I actually believe that that may be part of the um, the difference in the dating as well. Right. That the, the, the fire was burning, I think, till the next day, till the 10th. Yeah, right? yeah. That's yeah. Why people, right, right. That's why we still do stuff the next day. Right. Okay. So now getting back to the – so till post-destruction. So um, at this point, as uh, we'll get to the arch of, of Titus in, 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 in a little bit, but they take out the vessels. They take out everything from the base, from the temple. So talk about that and what happens at that point, what they you know plundered, so to speak. Right. So um, as I said last time, um, you know, Titus went into the temple. Um, Josephus doesn't really say that he, he saw anything there. And to me, that makes um, a lot of sense because – I, I believe that um, most of the uh, the treasures of the temple had probably been removed when it became clear that the that the temple was going to be captured by the by the Romans. And um, we happen to know, in fact, that there were uh, kind of multiple examples of some of um, these these treasures, uh, like the. Uh, the menorahs. There wasn't just one menorah, um, and in any case, you know the the menorah that's uh, shown on the um, the frieze um, on the Arch of Titus um, is a representation of a menorah. We don't know which one it was, uh, but definitely the idea was that it came from the the temple. Um, so, but some of those anyway were taken to Rome um, as sort of uh, booty from the from the temple and um, were displayed during the um, the triumph, uh, the processional triumph through the streets of Rome by um, by the Romans in the triumph of uh, Titus and Vespasian and subsequently um, were put in the the so-called Temple of Peace which Vespasian had 
uh, built um, in Rome. And some of them were there, we know, for, for centuries, were seen by um, hundreds of thousands, if not millions um, of people. So, you know, that was sort of standard Roman practice. Um, Vespasian called it a, a temple of peace, but it was a, um, a practice that went back to the Roman Republican period that conquering Roman generals um, had erected um, sort of um, monuments to their victories inside of the city of um, Rome. Right. And this is not exactly the place for this, but I'll just mention this or ask this, if you know, I mean, as for the myth or the legend that everything's still in, you know, the Vatican, it still exists. I mean, it, but Rome was sacked so many times, they're probably gone. I mean, what is, do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, I mean, there's, um, there are um, stories in later sources um, about what happened with some of the, um, the, the temple artifacts, um, we know that some of them were were taken out of Rome during late in antiquity. Um, what happened um, after that, um, nobody is really um, sure. But, you know, as I, I say to my students that we know that, uh, for instance, Alexander the Great was buried uh, finally in Alexandria. Um, if you find... Um, the Ark of the Covenant or the, the Temple Menorah, you automatically are going to become the most famous archaeologist in world history. Um, so I think it would be I think it would be pretty amazing um, if um, some of those treasures turned up. Um, you never know. You should never say never. We'll see. Okay, so now as for the other, you know, the famous figures that we were discussing and what happens were other other captured, killed in this aftermath? Right, so um, in the immediate aftermath, uh, there was kind of a negotiation between some of the um, rebel leaders and, um, and Titus uh, and the Roman army. And... Um, so some of the rebel leaders, such as uh, John um, of Giscala, were, were captured. In fact, we don't know exactly what happened to John. We assume that he was taken to, to Rome and uh, was part of the, um, the triumphal um, procession in 7, June of 71, um, but Josephus doesn't say that. Um, Simon, um, who was probably the most effective um, rebel leader, uh, went underground um, when the temple, uh, or after probably the temple fell, and um, had a plan with some other uh, guys to sort of um, continue digging through one of these tunnels to escape clearly beyond the Roman lines, but um, they either ran out of food or um, it turned out to be a, a too difficult a project. And he sort of um, popped out of the ground um, and was captured uh, by the Romans. And um, Josephus does say that he was brought to uh, to Rome and marched as a captive in the um, 
in the procession and at the end of the procession at the base of the Capitoline Hill in this small sort of prison area, a sort of cave-like area that the Romans used for prominent prisoners. He was killed. He was strangled, um, which was, you know, one of these appalling Roman customs that they had um, with um, defeated generals or leaders in, in wars. In my book, you know, I point out kind of the, the irony of that, if it's true that Simon's father was a, uh, you know, a convert to, to Judaism, that, um, that the guy, the son of a convert should sort of be selected as um, the, the symbol of the, the revolt itself um, and made into kind of, you know, the scapegoat, it, it, as it were, for, for the revolt. Um, so. Yeah, now, so after this, obviously, you know, unfortunately, the terrible tragedy, the destruction and what's going on in Jerusalem now, uh, what happens, what do the Romans, you know, do to Jerusalem as a whole, who, who becomes in charge or what happens? And as they pull out and as Titus heads back to Rome, what happens throughout the country as they head out? Right. So um, scholar, if, if you read older scholarly books about uh, Jerusalem after the war, you would have uh, found uh, people saying that Jerusalem was sort of emptied of Jews. That's probably not true. There were um, some Jews, we now believe, on the basis of epigraphical evidence, living in the living in the city, living around the city itself, um, probably, you know, um, serving Roman troops, because we know that um, after the the destruction of the temple and large parts of the city that the Romans um, decided that they would station the, the Roman 10th Legion in the city itself. And they, they sort of changed the, the system of administration there as well. Um, they, um, for the first time, appointed instead of either a prefect or a procurator, they appointed a legate, just like there used to be um, or was still a legate um, up in Syria. Legates were usually um, people who were in charge of Roman legions. So, so essentially, the takeaway about um, Jerusalem and Judea administratively is that it becomes militarized in the wake of um, what happened um, up to 70 or 71. So, so now, now for the first time, instead of kind of, um, you know, locally recruited auxiliary troops um, supposedly keeping the peace in this area, you have a, um, a Roman legion there and um, in the aftermath of that, um, as happened in so many other places in the Roman Empire, when when legionaries retired after their you know their service, their 20, 25 years of service, then a lot of them um, stayed in the in the area, and many of them settled in Caesarea or other places. We have a lot of inscriptions 
um, which talk about their careers and, and all of that. So, you know, this is part of kind of the transformation of this area. There were still there were still many Jews living in this area who had a lot of property, um, working, you know, in agriculture and all the rest. But, you know, but this is definitely a militarized zone in the aftermath of what happened. Right. And now what happens? So what does happen to a lot of these Jews in the rest of Israel and other surrounding countries? Right. So um, we actually have less information about um, the immediate vicinity of um, Jerusalem. We do know um, on the basis of archaeological finds, which, you know, sort of signal um, that there are Jews there who are uh, practicing their religion. Um, famously, um, you know, supposedly um, one group of um, Jews um, go to uh, Yamnia or Yavna um, and begin um, this process of kind of interpreting um, the destruction of the temple and the aftermath of it. Um, so, so, um, so there are, you know, the everyday ordinary people who, um, are still going about their business. Um, 90% of the people, both, uh, Jews and non-Jews, their everyday lives are about subsistence agriculture. Um, but of course, there, there are other people who are literate and who are continuing these um, traditions as well. If you open the, the lens a bit wider and look into um, the other provinces, the big change is that um, in the aftermath of the destruction of the temple, <clears throat> um, the Flavians um, halt the collection of the, the temple tax and instead impose on Jews throughout uh, the Roman provinces a, a two denarii um, donation um, to a fund originally to help rebuild the, um, the temple of Capitoline uh, Jupiter in Rome, but it gets extended and it becomes frankly kind of a punitive tax, which is collected um, into the reign or past the reign of Domitian. It got halted under um, briefly um, by the emperor Nerva, but then was reinstituted um, afterward and was collected into the third century. So the sad um, part of the sad story, which um, a, um, a colleague has called the, the Via Dolorosa um, is of this sort of pr um, prolonged um, uh, diminution of the, the status, including the legal status actually of Jews um, living in the, the provinces of the Roman Empire. And um, in the original version of my book, in addition to the 400 pages about the, um, the Hasmonean period, 
there was another 60 or 70 pages about the the period from the the early second century to the time of the Islamic conquests, actually. So um, a long period of time, but basically looking at the uh, progressive degradation of the legal position of Jews in the um, in the provinces of the Roman Empire. I mean, that's interesting. That sounds a lot like, you know, the, the Jew tax that would be instituted later. I mean, is this like the, the roots or at least the progression of anti-Semitism? Maybe there's something we'll talk about at the end and conclusion of your book, but this is kind of what a lot of that sounds like. Yeah, you know, it's a, uh, I, I think it is part of the story of, of anti-Semitism. Um, I mean, it's a very, very complex topic because um, we know, for instance, that in the city of Rome itself, before the destruction, before the, the revolt and the destruction of the temple, that there were that there were tens of thousands of Jews living there. Um, we know that um, a large part of that population lived in the area called what today is called Trastevere. Um, and there isn't that much evidence for sort of anti-Jewish um, uh, rhetoric or um, certainly legal um, uh, uh, punishments or, or anything like that. As a matter of fact, um, you know, Judaism was a illicit religion in the Roman Empire. And that was true even after um, the destruction of the temple. But um, you can have illicit religion that is a, a legal religion, and and you can have um, um, a legal status in the in the Roman Empire, but still also have um, uh, disab legal disabilities at the same time. So that's kind of the the change. As opposed to, um, you know, emerging Christianity in the second half of the first century and afterward in the second century, um, which didn't have a legal status. Christianity wasn't legal. Uh, you couldn't be a Christian, as it were. So, but that's a story that's that's a story for, you know, a different time. Yeah, that's a little sidebar. I just wanted to yeah. mention that, pick up what you're saying. Okay, so now getting back to uh, the, the aftermath. So obviously, um, Titus heads back to Rome. He takes the stuff, like we said, and what happens then? He gets back to Rome. What's his triumphant, you know, celebration, so to speak? Unfortunately, I don't want to use, you know, but what he from his point of view, right. um, and, and, and Vespasian, the, the Flavians, um, and then what happens... Uh, kind of their legacy also, I guess, especially as it pertains, you know, overall and as it pertains to the Jews. Um, and just talk about it. And then the arch, you know, obviously the arch is famous. Right. And why was the arch made? You know, throwing a bunch of questions out of you, but uh, yeah, all, all that kind of stuff. Right. So so Titus goes back to Rome, actually with Josephus sort of in tow. Um, and um, the Roman um, Senate and people, which means effectively the Roman Senate in negotiation with Vespasian decided that they should have kind of a joint triumph for both Vespasian and his son Titus, which was celebrated in June of 70 and of the 
um, of the person. It's kind of a, uh, a thumbnail sketch of the, the route of the procession. Um, it's a little bit uncertain. Um, some of the details are uncertain. But um, what isn't uncertain about it is what was included in the procession itself. Um, war captives, including um, Simon, as I mentioned before, uh, kind of marching in front of Vespasian and Titus. Um, for, for our purposes, um, probably the two most important elements of the procession were these, uh, were some of the treasures um, taken from um, both the temple, but also um, other other things taken from Jerusalem and apparently elsewhere um, as well. Uh, so from the temple, the golden table and the lampstand and a copy of the laws or the law, um, which was marched in the, in the procession. Um, and then curtains and valuable clothing and things like that. Um, probably, um, I think possibly uh, some of the vestments that the the high priest wore, um, that's a possibility. And then um, the Romans um, in their triumphal processions had like big scaffolds built on which were displayed pictorial representations of scenes from the, uh, from the war itself. So sort of telling the story of the, of the war. So that was the, the procession went through the, the streets of Rome. Um, some historians have estimated that there were uh, upwards of 300,000 people who witnessed the procession. Um, there were, you know, there was a big breakfast beforehand. And then afterward um, there were uh, feasts in the, in the evening. Um, and um, so, so it began over in this area around the, what's called the Campus Martius and ended um, at the Capitoline Hill, which I think is another indication um, that whatever Titus and, and Vespasian thought in their minds, which we don't have access to, the fact that um, that the procession ended um, essentially, you know, at the um, at the temple of um, Capitoline Jupiter was meant to send out a message to people that this was in in essence a kind of victory of Jupiter and the Roman gods over um, the god of Israel. I mean, this was. A, a religious message that they were sending as well. So, and then in the aftermath of uh, that, um, there were buildings um, that were planned and then put up um, that made reference architecturally or in inscriptions to the revolt and to the Roman victory. Um, the Temple of Peace, which I mentioned before, which was dedicated in 75. And that's where 
some of the temple treasures would, were displayed. It has to be said, um, amidst other works of art that were sort of taken from other uh, prominent places in Rome, including um, from the famous uh, big golden house, which uh, Nero was building for himself. Um, so, so this was the Temple of Peace was sort of a um, an art gallery cum um, triumphal space. Um, I mean, when Romans talked about peace, what they meant is a peace after a Roman victory in a war, um, not you know a you know sort of um, love and peace to all kind of space. Um, Interestingly, um, the copy of the law, which was apparently taken from Jerusalem, wasn't uh, displayed in the Temple of Peace, but in the imperial palaces um, up on the Palatine Hill, which is where the Roman emperors had kind of their official residences. And some of the hangings um, as well from the temple, you know, the um, embroidered or richly adorned um hangings as well so so some of the the artifacts were as it were were distributed in the um city um interestingly and one of the things that um i think is uh sort of underestimated by a lot of historians of course you know 99.9% of the visitors to the city of Rome to this day um, make a pilgrimage to the, the so-called Colosseum. Originally, the Colosseum was uh, known as um, the, the Flavian Amphitheater. And, um, you know, this was a place that um, subsequently became famous for gladiatorial combats and, you know, sort of these um, mass um, battles that uh, Roman emperors had staged to, to entertain the Roman populace. Um, it was opened in 80, so roughly 10 years after the, um, the destruction of the temple, through some very clever sort of um, scholarly detective work, um, a, um, a classical scholar called Gazel Foldy um, found an inscription and it was a reused inscription, one that had been sort of uh, reused um, later on, but underneath the original inscription turned out to um, date to the Flavian period and referred to the, uh, the building being built from the spoils of war, um, which means that at least in part, the original Flavian amphitheater was um, advertised to the public who was going in and out of this fantastic um, um, structure as being built from um, war spoils of the, the Judean war. So this was a war, a war memorial in a certain sense, a um, kind of a victory building of the Flavian dynasty. 
And as I say in my book, I mean, the, the, the Colosseum is the metonym of Rome. It is the, you know, the thing that people, if you say Rome, um, that's one of the first images that people have in their mind. And um, I, don't, I don't claim that it was wholly built um, out of the money and spoils that the, that the Romans took from Jerusalem, but in part, it was built from those spoils. And that's the message that the Flavians wanted to um, send to people. And then one other place, of course, that um, that everybody visits um, is the Roman Forum, um, which is, of course, where the Arch of Titus is, sort of um, at the um, southeastern part of it, along the so-called Via Sacra, the sacred road that goes through the middle of the city of Rome, and um, we know that this was originally supposed to be a kind of triumphal arch um, in honor of um, Titus for his victory. But he kind of died um, uh, while apparently they were still working on at least some of the ornaments um, in 81. And it it may have been kind of finished as more of a commemorative arch uh, to him. So sort of in his memory, but for us, the most important thing is that the freeze panel, of course, on the Southern side of it shows Titus and Roman soldiers um, passing through an arch, a decorated arch preceded by um, a bound captive. Um, who clearly is a um, um, a Jew, and um, the Romans are carrying objects um, from the from the temple treasury, um, including the table, um, and then cups and receptacles, and some silver trumpets. Um, some scholars uh, some scholars think that those were silver trumpets that were used to call people to prayer or to make sacrifice. Um, and then, of course, most famously, the menorah. So um, there, for, for many, many years, you know, um, scholars argued about whether um, this was the menorah from the, from the temple. Um, it turns out that there's one, more than one menorah um, that's part of, you know, the temple treasury. So it doesn't really matter whether this was the menorah. Um, this is a work of art um, that they are using to try to evoke what the, the captive treasures were. So, um, and I just want to pause here and kind of remind your, your listeners to something that I about that I talked about last time, which was, you know, um, Josephus's uh, account of the debate about whether Titus destroyed the temple on purpose, um, and Josephus sort of makes the case that no, um, 
the temple was destroyed as a result of Roman soldiers getting out of hand and Titus being able, unable to stop them and everything. So that was what Josephus was selling to his readers. And, and Titus, um, we know, reviewed um, the, the copy of um, Josephus's account of the war. So he seemed to be comfortable with that version of um, what happened. But on the other hand, um, here in the Arch of Titus, um, the message being sent out is not one um, where Titus is apologizing for carting away from, Je from Jerusalem and the temple, you know, the sacred vessels um, from, the, from the temple. So I think that that's something worth uh, pondering. And that's a message which is um, reinforced by a lost inscription, um, which originally um, had been um, incised on another arch, um, which was dedicated by the Senate and the Roman people to Titus um, by, um, the er by early um, 81 on the um, the so-called hemicycle of the Circus Maximus, which is sort of one of the endpoints of the Circus Maximus on its southeast side. So there was an inscription up there which said um, that um, Titus had subdued the race of the Jews and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, um, which um, by all generals and kings or races previous to himself, um, others had attacked either um, in vain or else um, not even attempted, all of which was totally untrue. Um, first of all, um, Titus didn't, as it were, subdue all of the Jews. Um, Everyone will know, of course, that Masada uh, wasn't captured until 73 or 74. So that wasn't true. Um, he didn't destroy the entire city of Jerusalem. And Josephus himself lists five previous times that Jerusalem had been captured um, before, the, before the Romans. So, so obviously, this is propaganda. Um, but Again, I think it's propaganda that doesn't fit very well um, with what Josephus has to say about um, Titus's reluctance to, um, to destroy the city of um, Jerusalem or a large part of it. So just looking quick, very quickly at the big picture then, so the Flavian dynasty used what they had done to the Jews by 70 or 71, kind of as the legitimation for their rule and also um, 
sort of made sure that people in the city of Rome and visitors to Rome would never be able to overlook that. And, you know, the reality is to this day, um, for even casual tourists to Rome, the, some of these major art um, monuments like the, the Colosseum and the Arch of Titus are still, as it were, sending out these messages. Um, the last time I was in Rome in January of this year, um, there were hundreds of people camped in front of the Arch of Titus looking at that freeze. Um, so, you know, it's um, one of the more successful attempts to project a, an interpretation of an event from the ancient world that's ever been made by anyone. Unfortunately, um, the result of the destruction of um, an incredible building, but there it is. So. So first of all, just to pull you back a, a bit already, uh, the date, what was the date of the procession? You broke up a little. The date of the procession, the triumphant procession was when? In June of 71. Okay. Now, just the arch in general as a monument, was was that kind of in Roman history? Was that a common thing after war they would put up an arch or that was something more unique here? Right. So so in the city of Rome, I mean, if, if you walk around, you're going to find several of these triumphal arches. The ones that have survived, survived from the Roman Empire. And of course, um, like everything else in Roman life, there was a kind of competition for who can have the biggest, most elaborate uh, triumphal arch. Um, but putting up these triumphal arches and putting up buildings, in fact, that are, you know, um, the result of victories over um, defeated enemies of the Romans, as I said, goes back into the Republican period. So, so you know, Titus and Vespasian um, supposedly, um, by the will of the, the Senate and the people, um, were playing an old game, as it were. Okay, so before we you already alluded to Masada, which is how Josephus ends, we'll, we'll yeah. return there in, in a minute. But first, we just mentioned Josephus here. I mean, what happened? You said Josephus obviously goes back to Rome. What happens to Josephus at this time? Right, so he goes to, to Rome and gets busy um, writing up his accounts of um, first the war, the first version of which um, was written, as he says, in his own language, um, which may mean um, Hebrew, but it could also mean Aramaic, um, to be sent to people living on the eastern side of the Euphrates. Um, that didn't that didn't survive. Um, so what we have, of course, is the um, Greek version. Um, presumably, um, what was going on in between seventy one or seventy and seventy nine, which is around when um, the Greek version comes out, is Josephus was working on his Greek. Um, you know, um, we know he had help, um, and he was reading a lot of, you know, kind of the, 
historical works of Greek literature, like uh, Thucydides' History in Greek, which was a very difficult text in Greek. So, um, and he was living in a house. He'd been given a house um, that Vespasian himself had lived in. So he was given a place, um, a, you know, um, uh, a salary, as it were, to live on, and also property um, in Judea, which had been uh, somewhere in the Jezreel Plain, probably. So, you know, he was set up, as it were, in the city of Rome, where he could work on his, um, you know, his literary output. So um, the war and then his sort of magnum opus, the, uh, the, the, what we call the antiquities, but also his, um, his life, which was written as kind of a, an appendix to the, the antiquities originally, wasn't separate from it. Um, and then his other works as well. Okay, so let's get to Masada, which is how Josephus ends his account of the war. And obviously, you know, we just mentioned Josephus, so he wasn't there. For this, he definitely wasn't there. So we can talk about how he knew exactly what happened. But let's, when, you know, just, I mean, people are probably familiar, but just in case not, you know, where where was Masada? When did this happen? And what happened? And we can discuss some of it. Right. So, so you know, um, as I always say to people, you know, the the Flavian War, as it were, was not the war of Jews against Romans, because the war didn't really end, as it were, in in 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem, because there were people not only at Masada, but at other places as well, like um, Herodion or Herodium, um, Machairus, and then Masada, um, and actually outside of Josephus, who were kind of on the side of the, the rebels. It's just that the you know, the Romans decided not to pursue some of these people until a few years um, afterward. Um, so, so one group, the largest group that we know about, of course, were, were um, up on Masada, up on this large, uh, you know, sort of flat-topped mesa, uh, over the um, you know the the Dead Sea, um, and um, kind of the core of that group had been there since the outbreak of the the revolt. Um, when in when we started in our series, I was saying that you know one of the relatives of um, one of the original leaders of the revolt, Menachem. Um, this guy Eleazar had gone there um, with some of the Sakarii, apparently, and so so they were up there for um, for most of the the war. Subsequent scholarship has has shown that in fact there were um, lots of different kind of people up on Masada, <clears throat> in addition to. The dagger men. There were uh, families, uh, women, children, um, you know, and probably people who belong to some of the other of the sectarian groupings um, as well. But but obviously, people 
who wanted to live away from and apart from Roman rule. So, um, so the legate is now there in, um, in Judea, these uh, Roman military governors with a Roman legion, but the Romans kind of left alone um, the, the rebel groups that were um, in uh, Herodion or Herodium at Machairus on the other side of the Jordan River, now in Jordan, and, and, and on Masada. For some reason, and we don't really know the reason, Josephus doesn't really tell us, um, the Romans decided that it was somehow um, intolerable to have these groups in these places. So they began attacking them either in 73 or 74. And this guy Bassus captured Herodion and Machairos. Um, and then after he died, his replacement, this guy Flavius Silva, became legate, and it fell to him to try to deal with the um, the Jews who were up on Masada. So Masada had been uh, fortified originally, um, as far as we know, under the Hasmoneans, and then Herod the Great had expanded the the fortifications up there, built a big uh, wall around it and built some beautiful, elaborate um, palaces. Some scholars think that, you know, uh, Masada was one of um, the places that Herod saw as kind of a bolt hole, an escape uh, place, just in case you know, Cleopatra convinced Anthony, Mark Anthony, to get rid of Herod. So it was a place he could run away to. Um, but anyway, um, so Masada was this place where um, there were these beautiful palaces, um, a large food supply, which had been collected over a long period of time, um, soldiers there with with arms and armaments. Um, 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 people with a variety of um, religious views as well, apparently. One of the most interesting things I think about Masada is that in the excavations of what was clearly some sort of um, meeting place or, or synagogue, um, they found um, the remains of um texts from um, the Hebrew Bible, um, also a large number of uh, ritual baths up there, mikvot, um, which shows that people were attempting to keep to, you know, purity laws and things. So, I mean, it's, I think it's, it's absolutely fascinating that by the time we get to the Roman siege of Masada and either 73 or 74, that essentially what we're looking at is a, um, a diverse community of Jews that included um, civilians, but also soldiers as well, 
and very likely representatives of all of the, in my view, representatives of all the main sectarian um, groupings as well. And then the Roman army showed up, um, the 10th Legion and some um, auxiliaries, probably around 8,000 or so soldiers who built um, a circumvallation wall um, around um, the base of Masada. Um, the circumvallation wall and the, and the kind of the fortresses that were integrated, um, most of them integrated into the wall, some of them outside of it were excavated um, by Israeli and American and other archeologists, including by uh, my friend, uh, Jody Magnus, um, from whom we've learned a tremendous amount about, um, you know, the, the Roman army during, during a short-ish siege there. So they show up um, and um, build this wall. And um, so I'm sure some of your um, listeners have visited Masada. Um, in fact, there are not just two ways up Masada. There are many ways up Masada, but only two ways which are viable for um, for most um, semi-fit human beings, um, the the so-called snake path, um, which is an interesting way to go up. I've done it myself. Um, I did it a lot more easily when I was young, um, but is not really the way that a Roman army would try to get up. And then on the western side, um, the so-called luke, the white path, which is the you know the remains of a natural spur, um, which most of the people that visit there today um, go up if they want to, you know, walk up. Um, so, um, so Josephus identifies that as the way that the Romans um, um, captured Masada by building uh, an embankment up uh, the western side and then near the top of the embankment when they got close enough to the um, Herodian era wall, uh, constructing a platform on which was uh, put a, a 90 foot high siege tower um, from which they could um, use artillery and a battering ram to break through the um, wall. So, um, so that's the that's the account that Josephus follows, and um, he describes the Romans bringing up the um, the siege tower, uh, making the breach through the wall, and then when it becomes apparent that the Romans are going to be able to break through and um, get up on top of the wall that um, Eleazar Ben-Yur um, makes a speech to the 967 men, women, and children up on top of Masada, urging them um, to uh, organize a, a way to commit suicide or to select a group of people who will slay uh, the vast majority of people 
and then finally have a kind of small lottery and then only one person will have to commit suicide. And so there's a first speech about that. And then um, uh, Josephus uh, reports that not everyone was entirely enthusiastic about the plan. And he made a second speech, um, which includes interesting things about the immortality of the soul and all the rest of it. And then finally, everyone is convinced and um, they um, go through with their plan. And then the next day, the Romans um, uh, uh, attack and there's silence and they they come up on top of Masada and they find um, they find the bodies and um, two women and a, a couple of children come out from a hiding place in a cistern uh, that they had gone to and disclose to um, to the Romans um, what had happened up there. So that's the that's the story that Josephus tells. There is a huge amount of scholarly controversy about whether that story can be believed or not. Um, very intelligent, credible scholars have sort of challenged aspects of the story. Um, in response, other scholars have um, kind of um, adduced evidence from the archaeological evidence which support aspects of the story. For I'll just give one example, for instance, um, in fact, there is evidence on the luke or the, the spur of some sort of um, construction of a, a wooden platform. Um, so kind of an, an architectural enhancement of the natural spur, the stone spur, um, which could be consistent with the construction of a, uh, a Roman style embankment. So, <clears throat> so there is a lot of controversy about that. From my point of view, what I, where I come out on this is that the, um, the, what has to be explained um, by people who want to challenge the fundamental Josephine story is why it is that exactly at the point where Josephus says there was a breach in the defensive wall on top of uh, Masada, why that breach is there right at that point that he says that this is where the, the Romans made their breakthrough after bringing their battering ram up there. I, <clears throat> I don't see any other plausible explanation for why the breach is at that point in particular. Does it mean that all, um, that all 967 people took part in the, um, you know, the, 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 the murder suicide? I'm not sure of that. And I don't know if we will ever know, although, I would also say that um, since Josephus circulated copies of his work, including his account of what happened at Masada, and that happened in the late 70s or early 80s, the circulation of the work, then 
Um, presumably by that time, there would have been people around who had taken part in the siege of Masada and knew what happened. And if it had been an outright fabrication, um, then um, I think that there might have been people who would have pointed that um, out. So, so that ends the siege of Masada, but not, as I point out in my book, the end of the resistance. Um, we happen to know from Josephus that either Sicarii or the followers of the Sicarii also were um, active in Egypt and in Libya as well. And there were kind of um, outbreaks of resistance there, which the Romans um, snuffed out. Um, it's, worth, it's worth pointing out again that in fact, probably in 73, Vespasian had decided <clears throat> that he wanted the, the temple that had been built in Egypt by, um, by Jews at Onias um, near Leontopolis to be closed and then eventually destroyed. And the 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 significance of that, I think, had been has been really um, under underestimated. So, so even if, for the sake of argument, you you said that um, Josephus was right and uh, Titus destroyed the the temple um, in Jerusalem by accident, he wanted to preserve it. If he preserved it, just to play a kind of intellectual game, would the Flavians have allowed Roman-friendly priests to continue with the sacrifices on behalf of the Romans? Okay. Um, but why, if that's, if that's the case, and it was destroyed by accident, why did the, why did the Flavians go out of their way to... Um, shut down the sacrifices going on in Egypt as well. So that says to me that the objective was to, to shut down the sacrificial part of Judaism. Um, why? Um, maybe because they felt that as long as the sacrifices were ongoing, that they were going to draw people to wherever those sacrifices were going to be made. There are two things that you can't do in the Roman Empire. You can't not pay your taxes and you can't disturb the public order. Those are the two things, those are the minimum requirements for staying on the right side of the Romans. So, I see the shutting down of the, the Egyptian temple, however heretical other Jews may have seen it as being, as pretty strong evidence that the Flavians, the Flavians never out, they never made being a Jew illegal. It, it continued to be a, 
illicit status, but sacrifices and the sacrificial cult, they went out of their way to end. Right. Um, so something in general to discuss about all that is just why does Josephus end with Masada with this? Why does he why does he end choose to end his war revolt of the Jews with this? I think that the the right explanation for this is contained in the speeches of Eleazar. Um, you know, unless the unless those two women that survived and the, and the children had the uh, the memories of you know a, a Homeric poet, they there's no way that they could have remembered these long speeches that Eleazar made. So these are speeches that, that Josephus puts into the mouth of Eleazar. Um, and if you read those speeches, which I would urge all of your um, listeners to, to do, unfortunately, the speeches are kind of all too consistent with what Josephus has had to say about um, who was to blame <laughs> for the outbreak of the war and its disastrous end as well. So, so I think that the real answer to your question is that he ends with Masada because Masada is sort of the point at which Josephus can say, especially about the, the Sicarii, kind of, I told you so, <laughs> you know, that's what happens to these guys, you know? And actually, I mean, there is a bit of temerity in all of this because he actually, he has Eleazar say, you know, sort of, we were wrong and, you know, and God has decided not to just sort of punish us a little bit, but actually, to wipe us out, to get rid of us. That's it. Um, which I I find uh, pretty amazing, actually. But there it is. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that the reason why is that it, it kind of, it fits Josephus's hypothesis about who is responsible for the war, the tyrants, as it were, as he keeps saying, and then the punishment for it, for the sins. And then, of course, the Romans are just the instrument of it. They're God's instrument. So there it is. It just fits. It puts everything together, closes everything together. Just one personal comment on what you said before we finish with some general questions is uh, about Masada. You said people go how they went up. I, I haven't been there in a number of years, but I took the lift up. I didn't walk, I didn't walk up. And uh, either either way you go, it's kind of hard. But I'm sure people have, you know, like you said, he walked up. Um, so just some general questions. I mean, in general, what, what was the attitude of the Romans in general to the Jews overall, whether that in you know, overall in the Roman Empire and then to the Jews in Rome? There obviously were Jews in the city of Rome itself at this time. You know, I think it's it's almost impossible to um, to generalize. There were there were certainly very prominent Romans who were 
both curious and sympathetic. The probably the best example is maybe the most famous Roman, Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar um, seemed to have been interested in Judaism, in Jews, and also um, went out of his way to to um, secure the the status of Jews living in majority um, Gentile or Greco-Roman cities to secure the the sort of safe um, collection and transport of the temple tax. And then there are, then, you know, there are, I think probably people who qualify as what we would call sort of anti-Semitic um, among Romans. Um, so um, for readers who, who are interested in this, there's a, there's a very, very good book by a, uh, a very prominent um, Israeli scholar called Ben Isaac, who teaches at Tel Aviv University about kind of the origins of anti-Semitism um, um, as a kind of um, phenomenon of this world. Um, I mean, I think that the war and its aftermath makes it um, makes it worse, as it were, for the majority of Jews because Jews were living all over um, the the Greco-Roman world, and now um, you have a, a Roman dynasty that's kind of you know built their prestige on defeating them. So, um, so yeah, it's a, this is, this is sort of, I think the beginning of a, a long and, and sad road, but it's not, it is not a, a road with an ending that I think that Titus and Flate and Vespasian could have anticipated. And, and that's something that I, that, that I think we should discuss here, because most of what we discussed on this episode was the maybe the little some of it, maybe in, in part three and then part four of the book, certainly. But part five of the book, which you term God's plan, is two chapters. We have chapter 22, the causes of the war or wars. And then you have, I believe, the final chapter, uh, the course and outcome of the war for your final, maybe conclusory chapters. So this is something that you, you know, you just mentioned to discuss what, you know, what, what were your conclusions there that you mentioned? And then, and then obviously picking up on something that you talk about all the way at the end, which is what you just alluded to. This is, you know, what, what the outcome of the story, you know, today is not something that Titus uh, and Vespasian and that they never, in, you know, they didn't envision that obviously. Right. So of course, I'm hoping that a lot of people will uh, take the time and make the effort to, uh, to work their way through this sort of long, long book, uh, but kind of in a nutshell, as far as the the you know causes, course, and then outcome are concerned, you know, basically the way I look at it is that um, wars are always 
um, questions of, of human choices. You know, people make choices. What I was trying to do was I was trying to um, remind um, scholars and um, the rest of the public that um, the choices that people made, which led to this war, were not kind of irrational choices necessarily, especially among the Jews. Um, we talked a lot about how the war broke out and what the events were that were leading up to it. Um, as I always say, you know, when you spill a lot of civilian blood um, and um, and don't address that, um, you're you're playing with fire, as it were. Um, and as far as the course of the war is concerned, you know, there's a lot in the book, of course, about the um, the military strategies of the two sides. And, you know, I'm not I just want to be clear that I'm not criticizing um, the the rebels for their strategy. I'm just suggesting that there were alternative strategies which they could have followed which, you know, um, might have yielded a, um, a, different, a different result. But of course, it's kind of a, counter, a counterfactual proposition because we can't know, we can't go back and, and replay it as it were. But, you know, the, the end of the book is really about, about the outcome. And it's, it's kind of where I try to sum up um, my ideas about what it is that the the Flavians thought that they'd accomplished and then what really did happen. So um, obviously this last, um, our last podcast, we talked a little bit about what they, what they thought they were doing with eliminating the sacrificial cult. What I very briefly argue in my book is that you know, the Romans sort of got it wrong. I mean, the sacrificial cult, of course, was incredibly important. It was an important part of um, Judaism or Judaisms and had been for a long time. But there was something else um, which was much more important, which was, you know, the word of God, um, you know, the book. And the book, as it were, was something that um, in, in some sense was unique among the peoples that the, that the Romans encountered both within and outside of their empire. Um, the Hebrew Bible wasn't just, you know, um, a book about uh, commandments, but also um, kind of a national history and a history of the relations between their one and only God and the people. Nobody else had anything like that. So, so when the Romans wiped out, you know, the sacrificial cult, they thought somehow that they had triumphed over, um, over this people. But in fact, um, behind, as it were, the building and the temple, there was this history um, as well, this sacred 
book. And books are a lot harder to wipe out. You know, you can't you can't bring up siege engines and a battering ram and just get rid of them. So the book, as it were, um, provided the um, inspiration and the guide for how even something as terrible as this, which was precedented because of the destruction of the first temple, of course, it was precedented and survivable as well. It was survivable. The question is, and was, you know, how were you going to survive it? What was the interpretation of it? And it's really not for me to say what that should be. But what I can do as an outsider and, and as an observer is say, okay, you know, Titus and Vespasian are gone. You know, the Arch of Titus and the Colosseum are tourist destinations. But, you know, the, the retaining wall is not. And also the book is not. It's a real living sacred book. So, so that's why I say I think that the Flavians got it wrong. They thought that they had won, but they didn't have <laughs> that longer view of what this was really about. So that's kind of where I end. Absolutely. And that's how you, you know, you end the book. Um, so I, I will say, obviously, we've, we've had a long conversation, you know, many hours now of this series. Um, the book is 465 pages, I believe. And then there's uh, a few hundred pages of, uh, you know, there's appendices and then there's foot, there's notes. But the appendices are really fascinating. Like I said, there's the military history. And then, you you know, you go through where they were, how many legionaries, how many auxiliaries, how many slaves, how much food they needed, how much liquid they needed. So anyone interested in military history, it's just it's fascinating besides the other things that you go through. Um, I said it's Yale University Press. It's available on Amazon Last I checked again, as of this recording, it's still $26 and even list price $45 hardcover. It's a great price. I will say I, I, I read the book. I find, I found it very readable, very enjoyable. Uh, there's a lot of history that, that people can learn, but I, I will ask you just for, uh, there's this. And then also I'll put a link to the Josephus, um, war, the, the Oxford, uh, classics one is a, new translation with notes it's very readable and usable are there are you mentioned some other are there other any other suge- obviously you're suggesting your own book but is there anything else if for uh, outside of this anyone any other reading that you would suggest to, to listeners right i mean it, it sort of came up in what we were um talking about uh today um you know that book by Benny Zock about anti-Semitism and uh, racism in the, in the ancient world, I think is really, really interesting. Um, and um, I would, I would also suggest you could Google some of the works by um, a couple of other friends of mine who work in um, Israel on this material. Um, so Hannah Cotton, who published actually the papyri from, uh, Masada, um, and was one of the, um, editors, the, the kind of head honchos for the publication of all of the inscriptions from Israel. Um, Jonathan Price, 
um, a guy who's written extensively about Josephus and um, and also um, uh, inscriptions. And then, of course, uh, Jody Magnus, who who teaches at the University of North Carolina, who is a, a fantastic archaeologist and um, wrote a very good book um, with Princeton University. If you're if if you are interested in Masada, if you want to know, I have one chapter in my book about Masada. Jody Magnus wrote a uh, um, a, um, a very user reader friendly uh, book for Princeton University Press about Masada, which I could recommend to people. Okay, so those would be some suggestions. Perfect. That, perfect. Thank you. And just uh, finally for yourself, I mean, I, I think you mentioned earlier in the beginning, you know, your other books are on Alexander the Great and other things in the, you know, not on specifically Jewish history. Um, are there other, other projects in the future that you're going to do on Jewish history? I know you, especially you mentioned that this book has a, many hundreds of pages left on the cutting floor. So is that something you'll turn into a book or is there something else perhaps? Right. I mean, there are two, yeah, there are kind of two things that I'm working on. One is that what you're referring to, which is kind of this story, the, the prequel, as it were, from Alexander the Great to Herod, which I think, you know, obviously I'd be dealing with the Maccabees and um, and sort of the the Greek dynasties in the area, the, the Ptolemies and the, the Seleucids. And then I have another um, project, which is a more sort of, uh, overtly political project about um, the fall of the Roman Republic and the American Republic, sort of a compare and contrast um, thing that I'm working on. Very interesting. Okay, well, we'll look forward. Okay. And uh, thank you once again for coming on a number of episodes to talk about the book. And like I said, I think it was really interesting. And it was a pleasure to uh, speak with you. Okay, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you.